electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. Today, Coinbase announces it will slash 20% of its workforce. That stock is down more than 80% since its April 2021 IPO. We're going to talk to one analyst who says brighter days are ahead, plus a media stock resurgence. We will break down bull calls on Warner Brothers, Discovery, AT&T, and Disney. And later, we are live at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference here in San Francisco. The CEOs of both Medtronic and Novartis join the show this hour. Let's get a look at how the broader markets are faring about an hour and a half into the trading session. After a muted start, we are seeing the major indexes move higher. The Dow Industrial is up about two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq Composite up a similar amount. And the S&P 500 up about one-tenth of a percent. Um, This comes ahead of a crucial earnings season. And pretty strong start to the year. Let's stay with the markets and the recent valuation reset that we have seen in stocks, especially the tech-related sectors. Dom Chu joins us with a look at how far we have come down. Dom, I guess it depends on what point in history you're coming from. So let's take a look at just the last few years, because we've seen some very big swings in terms of stock prices and valuations just since the COVID lows that we've seen to the post-recovery highs and then down to where we are again right now. So if you look at the S&P and the Nasdaq 100, we're still talking a little bit about this notion that stocks are trying to find some appropriate valuation given the fact that interest rates are now a lot higher and that there's an alternative for people to put their money in. Now, with the Nasdaq 100 losing about 28, 29 percent of its value over the last year, the S&P trying to find some footing down about 17 percent. Valuation-wise, though, is where things get interesting. For the broader S&P 500, on a forward price-to-earnings basis, what you now have is an index that has fallen from around 24 times forward earnings down to roughly where it is right now, which is roughly 17 times forward earnings. If you take a look at that valuation compression, that is where you start to see some of the opportunities that some traders are looking for. Now, within that S&P 500, you take a look at some of the sectors. You mentioned technology, and then you mentioned what's happening overall with uh, communication services, perhaps. If you take a look at those two sectors, those two sectors now have seen their valuations fall. The blue line is technology. Over the last few years, it's gone from around 28 times forward earnings to where it is about 20 times right now. The orange line is comm services. Here you can see it was traded around 25 times earlier in the last few years. Now it's closer to 15 times. And by the way, within those particular sectors, a handful of stocks are indicative of some of the valuation compression that we've seen. If you take a look at some of the big names that have seen those valuations really start to kind of move lower. Take a look at Microsoft. It was at one point in the last few years, 35 times forward earnings. It's now 22. AMD on the semiconductor side has been 60 times forward earnings, is now 18. Netflix has gone from near 90 times forward earnings to 30. And Meta Platforms has gone from about 31 down to 16. So, John, Deirdre, Carl, what it comes down to is whether or not there are any kind of valuation ideas as a result of this particular situation. Okay. 
So, Dom, help me out here with some more history, because you said overall came down from 24 times to 17 times. First of all, if I recall, high teens isn't cheap. And I got a question. Are these forward earnings? Is the E correct or is the E going to come in this earnings season, next earnings season and change that whole ratio? Those are great. Those are great points. If you take a look at the E situation, first of all, there is an argument being made by many strategists out there including the likes of Mike Wilson and others, who say that the earnings story has not been properly reflecting the possible downside that's ahead. Now, when we look at forward price to earnings, the issue that you have there is forward price to earnings, yes, is forward looking, but it's also predicated on analyst estimates. You have to assume, again, assume that the analysts are correct with their projections of what those earnings are going to be. If you take a look at the other point that you were trying to make with regard to kind of what's happened in history and, and about whether or not those valuations have fallen by enough, high teens, yes, is still expensive by many measures, especially historically speaking. And the tough part about the comparisons right now is that over the last 15, 20 years, you've seen a massive array of different types of interest rates, certainly in the wake of the great financial crisis when the Fed kept interest rates near zero. The issue is whether or not investors have gotten so accustomed to having no real alternative for investing in other assets that yield nothing to where they are right now. All of a sudden, you can make an argument that fundamentals matter more. The issue right now is a lot of investors are trying to figure out whether or not the valuations as they currently stand are actually good versus what we've seen in terms of the, the, the interest rate environment that we've seen. There's, there's been arguably two generations of investors now that haven't really seen the kinds of environment that we're seeing for interest rates and what they do to corporate fundamentals and tech and comm services and to a certain degree consumer discretionary are now at the kind of tip of the spear so to mm -hmm. speak about valuations overall. Yeah. Dom that's exactly sort of what I was going to ask you about these valuations may make sense in an easy money environment which we've been in for the last decade plus but things are changing I guess everyone's trying to figure out how long the Fed is going to keep rates at an elevated level or if they're going to go any higher. But this changes the whole thing as well. So there may be opportunity. But is pre-COVID valuations the right metric here, right? Do we need to go further back to the dot-com era or even further back than that to figure out, you know, where the opportunity is? So, so Deirdre, the, the point that you're making is a valid one for sure. The idea now is that if you want to look at some of the historical comparisons, it may not be fair to go back to the height of dot-com as indicative of what happened since the height of the pandemic boom and the pandemic recovery that we've seen. The issue now is about whether or not those valuations, because of interest rates, are the main driving force. We haven't talked a little bit about this notion that with higher interest rates come higher borrowing costs and a general overall slowdown in the economy. And so to John's earlier point, are earnings actually going to be affected by this, especially for companies that depend on capital markets to fund expansion? If that expansion is not necessarily necessary, given the macroeconomic environment, whether or not those companies should generate the kinds of profits that they need to to justify valuations, that becomes a whole mm -hmm. wild card as well. So again, it may not be fair to say that the dot-com boom is akin to what we saw exactly apples to apples in the post-pandemic recovery, but certainly it's a lot of folks out there are trying to figure out whether or not there is that kind of downside. And by the way, if there is, that doesn't portend well for what it could look like in the coming six to nine months. 
Tom, appreciate that. Uh, Dominic Chu starting us off this morning. Our next guest sees uh, some high equity risk premiums putting pressure on sectors like tech, communication services, and semis. Joining us this morning, NYU Stern School of Business, professor of finance, as well as Demoter. And uh, Professor, great to have you back. Um, Glad walk to be us back. Through and we, equity risk premiums getting a lot of talk now uh, from those who see the market going through crucibles later in the year. Can you make it easy to understand for viewers and then talk about why it's important to watch? In fact, I'm going to connect it to the discussion you just had about P.E. ratios. P.E. ratios are a composite measure of where the market is, but they're flawed because they're affected by a lot of different things. They're affected by the growth in earnings, the risk you see in equities, as well as what risk-free rates, interest rates are. And over the last decade, we had this trifecta of really low rates, risk capital in abundance, which meant risk premiums were low, and people were willing to pay insanely high P.E. ratios, and in fact, even higher P.E. ratios for high growth firms. 2022 was a year of adjustment. First, you saw interest rates go back to pre-2008 levels, in fact, you know, 4% rates. We haven't seen that in a while. We also saw people kind of pull back from markets. Risk went up partly because of real occurrences on the ground, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the potential for recession, and risk capital, in a sense, went into retreat. So I don't think this is going to change dramatically over 2023. Risk capital, in a sense, is not going to go back to where it was in the last decade. But that higher equity risk premium basically means people are demanding a higher return for investing in stocks, which effectively means you've got to pay less right now to earn that higher return. So it's a composite measure that captures where we are today. Higher risk free rates, right. bigger worries about risk and less risk capital at play. Right. I'm curious about, I mean, speaking of some of these particular tech verticals, you're actually talking about the process we're watching, for example, today with Apple, these reported efforts mm -hmm. at, at going more vertical uh, in at least their engineering. Can you explain why that's important? I think for, the, for especially in tech hardware and even in telecom equipment, the history is you've been able to charge high margins, high margins because you're in a growing market and your customers were in a sense splintered. They needed your products. I think the challenge that the, that the sector faces long term is the business is getting commoditized. There would still be niche companies. NVIDIA might go after a niche market with higher margins, but collectively the business is getting commoditized, which means there's going to be pricing pressure, lower margins. And you, you've seen this even prior to 2022. If you looked at the semiconductor business, its revenue growth is less than 10%. It's down to 8 or 7% in a period of high growth. And I don't think that's going to change going forward. From that perspective, when you're, when you're pricing these companies, which is what you're doing when you're looking at historical P ratios, you can't assume that these companies will revert back to where they were pre-COVID or even pre-2017 you know, pre because the business itself, I think, is shifting. Oswald, what do you think is the impact of overall bonds, whether we're talking about corporate bonds, muni bonds, uh, you know, government debt in, in general, becoming more attractive as a source of, of yield and income into the future. It seems like the supply of potential money going into the market now has more places to go. What does that do to tech stocks? You know what? It gets us back to a more normal time. I'm old enough to remember times before 2008. And when people complain about 7% mortgage rates and 4% T-bond rates, they just haven't lived long enough in the market to get some perspective. So maybe the aberration was not what happened in 2022, but what we had between 2008 and 2021. 
maybe we're returning to a more normal time, and that might be healthy for all of us, because the reality is 0% interest rates and capital flowing to companies which have no earnings and not even a pathway to making earnings is not healthy for an economy in the long term. So from, from that perspective, maybe 2022 was a return to sanity. So, Oswath, um, free cash flow is a metric that a lot of investors are increasingly focused on and a metric that a lot of CEOs are touting these days in this new market environment. Uh, but for some of the unprofitable high growth companies, stock-based compensation is, some might argue, a dilutive factor to that free cash flow metric. Um, what's your stance on it and how do you think that the average investor should be pricing it in? I should treat, I, I treat stock-based compensation like any other expense. The notion that it's non-cash is a delusion because you're giving away a slice of equity every time you grant. So that's why I'd see, I, I view the practice that analysts have of adding back stock-based compensation to getting to earnings to be malpractice. You need to stop doing that. It doesn't make any sense. We'll so when CEOs. companies use stock to pay for anything, they're essentially paying out of my equity. So do you think it will be handled differently going forward by CEOs and companies it, themselves? The, the tragedy is it is already. The accountants tried to fix this problem in 2007 by treating it as an expense, but the problem was analysts reversed it. So, in a, you know, the accounting actually, for, which is unusual for accounting, came to its senses 15 years ago, but analysts seem to refuse to let go. Professor, um, we're going to talk more about this as we move into the new year and, and have more hindsight on 2022, as you suggest. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you. Still to come this hour, the CEOs of Medtronic and Novartis live from the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, plus Coinbase to cut another 20% of its workforce as the company continues to deal with the crypto fallout and FTX. We're going to talk to one analyst who is staying bullish on the name despite the massive drop. Tech Check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Let's turn now to medical technology and robotics. Medtronic shares have had a rough time in the last years. The company embarks on a restructuring and waits for elective procedures to return to pre-pandemic levels. The company's CEO speaking at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference this week, sounding more bullish about the second half of the fiscal year and its plans with us now, Medtronic's CEO, Jeff Martha. Jeff, uh, good to have you. Good to see you. Um, I, I definitely want to get into some of the technology that you're working on, but first I, I want to touch on the latest updates you've been sharing there at J.P. Morgan Health. Um, Give us your update on progress in the diabetes business, which you've got in turnaround mode, and the easing of some of the headwinds that have been affecting your business for the past several months. Sure. Well, first, it's it's great to be back with you, John. And uh, you know, answer your questions on uh, on those on diabetes. Look, this is a an ex exciting area for us, where you know we we treat insulin dependent 
diabetics uh, with a, a cutting edge therapy and 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 um, it's a it's a series of a, a sensor and a and a, and a insulin delivery device and, and sophisticated algorithms that have actually learned to uh, learn your, your, your sugar levels, predict your eating habits, and really get these diabetics in, in control. And, and we have some new therapies out on the market outside the U.S. where we're growing you know, roughly 15% uh, the last few quarters outside the U.S. We now get these therapies in the U.S. and, and that is uh, really dependent on an FDA and an upcoming FDA inspection that uh, that we're waiting on, and uh, so we're we're optimistic in the next few uh, you know next few quarters where we get that on the market in the U.S. So that's a that'll be a big boost for us. And then the other topic you mentioned was just elective procedures coming back. Uh, you know we're seeing most of our therapeutic areas elective procedures are back to pre-pandemic levels. There are a few that I talked about yesterday that aren't quite there, but they're they're inching their way back, and they're in the high 95 percent plus range of, of back to their original areas. So, you know, overall, and, and then the other area is supply chain, which is, is getting much better too. So overall, the market dynamics continue to, to get back to, to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, and we have a number of therapies beyond diabetes, uh, new products that are hitting the market that we're talking about this week at J.P. Morgan. Now, you embarked on your restructuring sort of before that became something that so many other companies now uh, across the economy are looking at and now have uh, Walmart's former uh, you know, operations and supply chain uh, person working on your cost of goods sold and whatnot. How does that fit into the economic times that we find ourselves in now where your gross margins have been affected and you're looking at a multi-year process of getting them back to where they were a few years ago? Sure. You're, you know, to your point, John, we started this you know, well before the current uh, economic environment with supply chain issues and things like that. And, and the reason was at Medtronic, we're sitting at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And there's just so much opportunity when you combine the advancements in biomedical engineering with a number of these tech advances, whether it be robotics or, or cloud computing or AI. And so what we wanted to do in this restructuring is really make the company more you know, focused on innovation-driven growth, making the company more nimble uh, and, 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 and putting more into our uh, research and development. Uh, and, and one of the areas to get more, free up more of our income statement to invest in research and development was to reduce uh, a more aggressive plan to reduce our cost of goods sold and consolidate our, our global network of manufacturing uh, facilities and, supply, and, and distribution centers. And that's when we brought in you know, Greg Smith from Walmart to really engineer this, to bring down that cost of goods sold, to create oxygen, to invest in these exciting uh, technologies uh, that ultimately will result in new standards of care across several different uh, therapeutic areas in cardiology, the neurosciences, surgery, and diabetes. I think that's so interesting because so many companies of all sizes are going through that process. You talked yesterday about capital allocation and how it's not just about allocating capital to uh, businesses that are growing top line, but also to businesses that are profitable. So when you look at uh, those earlier stage technologies, you mentioned AI, that have a lot of potential, but revenue is a bit off. What kind of filters are you going to use to determine how much to put into those at this point? Well, so like you mentioned, we're, we're prioritizing where we can have the biggest patient impact, which is also very much tied to our economics. And so where we're prioritizing is 
is areas like, these are secular growth areas because these are age-related diseases, and as you know, the population around the world is, is getting older. Things like you know, heart valve replacements, minimally invasive techniques to replace heart valves. Uh, you mentioned diabetes. Another one that's a hot topic here at the, at the conference this year is new therapies for atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation uh, has caused over a half, a, like roughly a half a million uh, hospital admissions last year in the U.S. alone. And the medical technology is getting to the point where in some cases it's even considered the frontline therapy uh, for atrial fibrillation, you know, ahead of uh, current drugs. So these are the areas, robotic surgery is another one, where we're prioritizing. These are very large patient pools around the world where technology has a big impact in improving the efficacy, uh, improving access, right, uh, as well as reducing costs. And these are the areas... And coincidentally, these areas happen to be very uh, high margins because uh, we do have to get our gross margins back up to where they were pre-pandemic. And this market selection is, is, a, is a, you know, it's the inflation and things like that have affected our gross margins. And, and this market selection is one of the ways shifting our mix to these higher profit areas is one of the ways we're going at getting those margins back to where they were pre-pandemic. All right. Uh, Medtronic working on efficiency and trying to invest in the future like so many technology companies. Jeff, thank you. Jeff Martha. Thank you, Jeff. Great stuff there. And after the break, bull calls for Warner Brothers Discovery and AT&T. Warner Brothers up 20% this year already. So will media continue to see a resurgence in 2023? Plus, Microsoft reportedly in talks to invest $10 billion into OpenAI. That's the owner of ChatGPT. That story is also coming up. We are back in two. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back. Warner Brothers Discovery rallying more than 28% in the new year. This morning, multiple firms make it a top pick along with AT&T. Our Julia Borston joins us with some of the potential catalysts for the media sector and what Jessica Reef Ehrlich says today, JB. Well, after media stocks, particularly Warner Brothers Discovery, underperformed the S&P last year. Now analysts are finding new opportunities. Warner Brothers Discovery shares are up um, about 5% today on two bullish analyst notes, both identifying a positive risk reward. Now, B of A just added Warner Brothers Discovery to its U.S. one list of the best investment ideas for the year with a $21 price target for the now $12 stock, saying, quote, the spring launch of a new combined direct-to-consumer service, a more robust film slate, incremental synergies, and de-risked consensus. Forecast makes Warner Brothers Discovery's risk-reward highly attractive at current levels. Goldman Sachs naming Warner Brothers Discovery its favorite media pick for 2023, saying, We see the risk-reward skew for Warner Brothers Discovery as most attractive versus its peer group, with key execution catalysts, merger milestones, streaming relaunch, largely within management's control. This is all, of course, bouncing off a rough 2022. Just year-to-date with today's gains, Warner Brothers' Discovery shares are up 29%. Paramount shares are up 17%. Netflix, Comcast, and Disney shares are all up between 8 and 
50%. Now, Guggenheim, with a buy rating on Disney and a new note out today, saying that they see the most potentially impactful valuation updates to be driven by Bob Iger. Investors are going to be closely watching Bob Iger's commentary in Disney's next earnings report. So, guys, a lot to watch in this next round of earnings. The question is, did these media stocks hit a bottom? Yeah, Julie, I'm wondering whether or not you feel like this is about uh, macro backdrops that can benefit uh, the whole universe, or is this more about companies, in B of A's words, that have already done a lot of heavy lifting in terms of costs? These are companies that have done a lot of heavy lifting, but I also think you have to ask what are going to be the catalysts right now. I mean, it's been interesting seeing that there are films that are performing at the box office and there is more potential in the streaming business. The fact that you have both Netflix and Disney with these new lower cost ad supported um, streaming services, the fact that you're going to have Warner Brothers Discovery combine some of its streaming services and maybe have a better offering um, for consumers, something that's more sticky, more appealing, because you're getting more in that one service. Um, the question is, are these really going to be catalysts and show that these are services that are going to be robust and resilient in, in, in tougher economic times? I also think there are a lot of questions about the ad market. We're going to be hearing a lot about the ad market, both from the social media players, from the tech giants, and also from the media giants. Where are ad dollars going? Are we going to see more advertisers say we want to be associated with premium content like the content on Hulu? Um, or are they going to be saying, like, let's shift more money over to Meta? So I think that's another thing where there could be more opportunity for these traditional media players, the safety of premium content. Yeah, well, that picture is going to fill in here uh, in the next several weeks. Uh, Julia, thanks so much. Really interesting times for media uh, to start the new year. Let's get a news update this morning with our Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. And we're watching some business headlines right now. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell gave a speech overseas this morning insisting central banks need to be free of political influence to tackle inflation. Powell also said the Fed is not and will not be a climate policymaker, his words. CBS Health is looking to buy Chicago-based Oak Street Health in a deal that could be worth about $10 billion. Oak Street shares are surging more than 30% on that report from Bloomberg. Virgin Orbit shares are plunging this morning after the company ditched its latest mission to launch a satellite into orbit from UK soil. It's Virgin Orbit's sixth mission to date and its second launch failure. And shares of gene sequencing equipment maker Illumina are tumbling after the company said its 2023 profit will be lower than analysts expected. Demand for its equipment and services has fallen in the broader downturn for the biotech sector. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. Contessa, thanks very much. Mm -hmm. And up next on Tech Check, Coinbase planning to lay off 20% of its workforce. This is the second major round of job cuts. That stock about 85% off its 52-week high. So is it enough to right the ship or is more pain to come? We'll debate. Tech Check is back after this. Welcome back. Take a look at the markets this morning. Pretty tight range today as we got past some of those uh, Jay Powell headlines. We did get to 3,900 briefly on the S&P as we're moving into what some are calling a pretty fierce bear market rally. Some of your movers at this hour on semi among the worst performers today after getting a downgrade to market perform over at Blair. On the seas, Morgan Stanley cutting Norwegian today uh, to underweight and upgrading Royal Caribbean to equal weight from sell. And Broadcom moving lower on these reports that Apple plans to drop some of their key chips to use an in-house design, something we'll be talking about, I'm sure, Dee, in the coming weeks. 
Yeah, we certainly will. And let's stay with today's mover. On the other side of that, there's Coinbase shares moving higher after joining the growing list of companies cutting costs and workers. The company is saying that it is laying off 20 percent of its workforce after already reducing staff by 18 percent just in June. CEO Brian Armstrong blaming the pressure on, quote, unscrupulous actors who have created a black eye for the industry and warning that there's likely more shoes to drop. Shares are down almost or about 80 percent since 2021. Uh, That said, there's still a few bulls on the street, including our next guest, SVB Moffat Nathanson's Lisa Ellis, who joins us alongside our very own Kate Rooney, who got those comments from Brian Armstrong to help break down this name. Lisa, let me start with you. You got to justify to our audience how you get to that $200 price target. What kind of growth does that assume in the year ahead? It's certainly not coming from trading volumes, revenues, profitability like it has in the past amid this crypto winter and all the FTX fallout. Yeah, that's true. So we assume we do assume that the crypto market begins to recover in 2024, consistent with the prior cycles. Typical historical crypto cycles have been about three years you know, so if 2021 was the last peak year, then we put, you know, a recovery in 2024, although one not anywhere close to what we've historically seen. And on that measure, which is on an outlook for 2024, that's a little bit above 2021, we're only a $200 price target is only about eight times EBITDA in that year, which just to put it in perspective, high growth names that I cover like a block are over 30 times EBITDA. So meaning, you know, we could be wrong by 4x and it would still be a valuation similar to that level. So it just gives you a sense that like if you believe in the crypto cycles and that crypto will recover and that Coinbase is fine, as their 8K today indicated, you know, that if you've got, you know, the strong stomach and can handle this level of like deep volatility and bottoming in the market, there will be tremendous upside when we come out on the back of this, which we're anticipating hopefully will be toward the end of this year. But that's a bit, you know, uncertain, of course. And it still begs the question, Kate, where that revenue, where that growth is going to come from, because that trading revenue, I mean, at least the fees, they're never coming back. You've got Binance in the market, slashing fees, more competition. Um, And if Coinbase is cutting now, who's developing these next products that's going to you know, develop the crypto economy that Coinbase talks about. And that's been historically the bull case for Coinbase, that they'd be able to diversify away from trading revenue. They've conceded that, yes, eventually trading fees will be compressed, and they say that they're gearing up for that. Brian Armstrong and the, the rest of the executive team have really made the case since the IPO that this, you, like Lisa said, you need to have a strong stomach. It's going to be volatile. They've talked about other cycles and crypto winters and said that you've really got to believe in their strategy long term. And he likened it in this scenario to the dot-com era, the boom and bust, and that Internet companies that made it through that were more disciplined on cost, which is really what they're trying to do now. And obviously, everybody wants to be Amazon in the end, but they're making that case to investors that we are tightening our belts, we're going to make it through this, and we were the best positioned in the market at this point, which has been is, is now sort of the new bull case, that, that they're going to be able to rein in spending, which they're showing right. with some of these uh, cost cuts and stock-based compensation was a huge expense for them. Absolutely. And so, Lisa, if you're assuming then that Coinbase is going to kind of emerge from this crypto winner, it's going to survive and even thrive in the long term, the next cycle is going to look very different, though, isn't it? I mean, yes, it's the most regulated, the most transparent play, but this industry, um, does that make it a profitable business or is the next winner 
going to come from somewhere else? Is it going to be a private company that isn't going to have to build with all of those regulations or scrutiny in place? Yeah, so you're, I don't know that we believe necessarily that crypto trading, which has been the big kind of killer use case in this cycle, is going to be the, the killer use case in the next cycle. But Coinbase is, as Kate highlighted, rapidly diversifying their business away from the dependency on trading and really focusing on simply being an infrastructure provider for the ecosystem, regardless of what use case it is. So this could be NFTs, so you know, digital asset transfer and ownership, which there's a huge amount of enthusiasm behind in the industry. This could be using crypto for like the boring, but but you yeah, know, but sort of Lisa, quick fantastic. question. You say they are diversifying. Are they or are they just trying to? I mean, Kate, to you, is there revenue coming from significant revenue coming from other places in the company? So there, there's been subscription and services revenue that they've tried to move towards, also institutional trading. But one question going forward, they've talked about during in this round of layoffs, also cutting in other places and saying some of the projects yeah. that were more ambitious that aren't showing the more near term promise they're also scaling back on. So they're going to have to balance cutting costs, not necessarily investing in some of the the growthier, maybe right. moonshot projects that they, they may have done a year ago and trying to figure out what's going to work. One thing that Brian Armstrong did talk about was uh, different types of self-custodial wallets and really giving people the option to sort of adapt and say, hey, if you don't want Coinbase or any exchange to hold your money, you can still keep it with us, but and in your own you. pocketbook and then charge you from that. <laughs> okay. So things like that, they're, they're sort of trying to adapt to that new environment. We'll, NFTs yeah, we'll for see. a while. Know, but, we know what happened to the NFT business. Yeah, Ladies, thank you both. Kate and Lisa, Lisa, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Now, after the break, we're going to head back out to the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference to sit down with the CEO of Novartis. That stock well outperforming the S&P over the past 12 months, actually flat. Skip the market's downturn in 2022. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's been a relatively strong few months for the healthcare sector and some key names in it. In the past six months, the S&P is flat, but healthcare is up 3%. Uh, among the biggest winners, Novartis, which has seen a jump of 7%. Our Meg Terrell joins us from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference with the Novartis CEO and the CNBC exclusive. Meg? John, thanks so much. Vaz Narasimhan joins us now. Vaz, it's great to be with you. Great to be with you, Meg. Well, let's talk about what you've been talking about here at the conference, which is sort of the transformation of Novartis uh, into what you call a pure play innovative medicines company. Yeah. Tell us about just what that means and sort of where you are in that process. You know, Meg, when you look at how Novartis was created 25 years ago, we were a broad-based conglomerate, eight divisions across multiple areas of healthcare. And over the recent years, we've done about $100 billion of transactions to focus Novartis down to what we think we're best at, discovering and developing truly innovative medicines and launching them successfully. And what that really positions us for in the future is one of the largest pure play innovative medicines companies. Over $40 billion of sales just in innovative medicines. We're doubling down on our R&D, some of the new technology areas like radioligand therapies, cell and gene therapies. And we think that's going to be the right path for us to generate sustained growth and profit growth for the future. Do you think that's something that investors are looking for? They want a pure play investment. I mean, we saw J&J spinning out the consumer group. Some companies are staying together, though. Merck yeah. is not getting rid of its animal health business, yeah. for example. So is that something investors are pushing for? Not necessarily investors are pushing for, but I, I do think that when you look at how fast technology is moving, I mean, if you look in the last five years, we've had the RNA, mRNA, siRNAs, gene editing, 
um, RNA editing, cell and gene therapies. If you want to stay at the leading edge of these innovative areas, you really have to focus. It's going to be very hard to allocate capital to those areas and then also be, like in our situation, contact lenses and medical devices. So we think it's the, it's the right strategy for, for the long run. I'd also say when you look at the multiples, I mean, clearly pure play companies command a higher multiple and conglomerates face a discount. So we're hoping that that will also allow us to re-rate over time. Hmm. So speaking of cell and gene therapy, which is a really big space for you guys um, and growing, you know, thinking about personalized medicine, how big of a part of the way we treat medicine generally do you think this is going to be over the next few years? And when you see successes like we just saw with Merck and Moderna mm -hmm. uh, for their personalized cancer vaccine using mRNA, do you feel like you need to get into mRNA in that space too? I think first, I think on the cell and gene side of things, it's clearly now maturing. I mean, there's an opportunity, I hope, to treat broader and broader areas. So in cell therapy, can you move beyond cancer to severe immunological disease? I think gene therapy has had a little bit of a pause as we've worked through some of the challenges, but I think there's going to be an opportunity to treat more and more patient populations in gene therapy. I think for single patient therapies that are really truly customized, the key is can you get to scalability? Because for the business to be profitable and sustainable, you've got to be able to sustain and, and scale the technology, get the cost of goods down. And that'll be the question anytime you do single patient technologies. For us, you know, where our focus is on what we call xRNA. So we have a large small interfering RNA uh, product, Lecvio, which you know well. We have a few others in development, a big effort in our research labs. We've not gone into mRNA yet, certainly evaluating it, but our focus is much more on, on what we call interfering RNA technologies. Mm, that makes sense. You know, you're also in neuroscience as one of your five core areas, and really in neurodegeneration, you list ALS, uh, Parkinson's disease, not so much Alzheimer's disease, but where we are in this space right now, given the approval on Friday, is that, does it make it more interesting to you to potentially uh, invest more in? I mean, certainly Alzheimer's is the big, you know, the, the biggest indication in the neurodegenerative space, but also I think the toughest to really have a large impact on patients. In areas like Parkinson's, ALS, we can find gene-driven areas, genetic-driven areas, where we can find drugs that we think have a, a high degree of plausibility, still high risk, but the opportunity to hopefully have a really big impact on those patients. Alzheimer's disease has been really tough. I mean, I think we, of course, the amyloid hypothesis has now maybe come to the end of the story. Let's see. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think the key is to find new mechanisms. Can we find other, other, something beyond amyloid or tau in, amyloid, uh, in Alzheimer's? Some of the things we're working on is can you link, for instance, siRNAs to antibodies and direct those siRNAs into the brain or find other ways to get these technologies into the brain to help Alzheimer's patients. But this is really early stage stuff. Yeah. Oh, very interesting though. Vaz, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, great to see you, Meg. Appreciate it. All right, Carl, sending it back to you. Oh, wow. Fascinating interview, Meg. Thank you. That's our Meg Terrell. Uh, when we come back, why one Wall Street firm says love isn't a battlefield. We have the top picks in the dating space as Bumble gets this bull call after the break. Welcome back. KeyBank today upgrading Bumble, saying love isn't a battlefield. Our Julia Borson's back to break that down. Hey, Julia. Hey, Carl. That's right. Bumble shares, they're up about 5% this morning on this report after gaining 3% yesterday. KeyBank raising its rating to overweight, saying that they've seen data remain, dating remain resilient, and they believe Bumble is positioned to benefit from a couple things. First, opportunities to grow its payer base and introduce regional pricing, saying they estimate that a la carte revenue is just 10 to 15% of revenue today. They're also bullish on the international business, saying they believe Bumble, the Bumble app is ramping 
ramping an international market. And third, they see FX headwinds moderating. Meanwhile, Bumble's rival Match, that stock is pretty much flat today after gaining 3.5%. Yesterday, those gains were on a note from Jefferies, saying in its 2023 internet playbook that it predicts that Match will outperform Bumble this year, saying Match has a clear pathway to accelerating revenue growth. It's worth noting that over the past 12 months, Match shares are down 65%, while Bumble shares are down about 35%. Now, Jefferies gives Match Group a $60 price target, saying that the bull case is that its 5 to 10% revenue growth guidance for the fiscal year is conservative, especially given new product catalysts at its two apps, Tinder and Hinge. Now, Jefferies does have a hold on Bumble. The question that they're asking is whether the market is big enough to support the growth of multiple dating products. John? All right, Julia, thank you. Speaking of dating, institutional investors hooking up with China. This bullish reversal we've seen in China to start the year being backed by some large institutional investors. One third of benchmarked funds are now overweight China. Seema Modi's here with me with that story. Seema? And John, the big takeaway from the conversations we've had with fund managers is that they're betting more on specific countries. Uh, we spoke to Krishna Mamani. He's a CIO of Lafayette's $1 billion endowment, telling investors that buying into broader emerging market ETFs is easy but less ideal. The strategy for 2023 is bet on specific countries like China. And even with the outperformance in Chinese stocks as of late, Goldman Sachs shows that China is trading at a 19% discount to other emerging markets. And so far, only one-third of EM benchmark funds are overweight compared to the 70% of funds that are bullish on Brazil and Mexico. In two months, Beijing has pretty much unwound pretty much all of its pandemic restrictions. And if we just track the reopening, 98 cities across the mainland, which account for about 70% of the country's GDP, have seen mobility return from early January. That is according to analysis from Morgan Stanley, which predicts that Chinese markets can jump an additional 16% by year end. Their top pick is Alibaba and the internet space, but they also recommend some of the Chinese sportswear companies like Anta and Laning, uh, as well as some of the travel names like Cathay Pacific and BOC Aviation, which is a lease craft uh, aircrafter in China, John. All right. Well, okay. That's a good big picture. I wonder, though, how much of a bet on Chinese stocks is a bet on the Chinese government getting the economy overall under control? And, and specifically, now that COVID appears to be getting somewhat under control post-zero COVID is real estate the next COVID, with the government trying to bail out that sector. No, it's a great point. The the abrupt reversal of President Xi's policy has played a huge role in, in boosting market sentiment. It's one of the reasons so many Wall Street analysts are expecting China to outperform uh, the GDP estimates now for 5.2% this year from the country. But to your point on real estate, Goldman Sachs point, pointing out in their note that one of the key risks looking at China's economy is the market challenges around the property market uh, sector, mm-hmm. because even as much money as China wants to put into that sector. There are just some real systemic issues there. Absolutely. And the upcoming Lunar New Year, Seema, is going to be a really key test of consumer strength in the country. But helping this reopening case also is the stronger yuan. 
And I wonder, that is likely to be bullish for the names that you cover and travel as well. What are some of those CEOs expecting? No, it's a great point, Deidre. When the customer there feels like they have pricing power and they have more purchasing power, they're absolutely going to feel like they want to spend more on travel. Uh, and it's a key part of their sort of lifestyle, right, pre-pandemic. So I think the question is whether uh, how fast the pace of recovery is in the next couple of weeks on January 22nd when the Lunar New Year really kicks off. We'll be watching the numbers from Trip.com, which is essentially the Expedia of China, uh, booking holding, which of all the travel names has the highest exposure to that country. And then for outbound travel, Deidre, Airbnb as well. I mean, are we starting to see that shift similar to the American consumer yeah. not only staying at hotels but became rentals as well. Right. And Airbnb making that bet that they're going to be traveling outbound, right? Closing up their China yes. business. Seema, thank you so much. By the, by the way, Year of the Rabbit coming up. As we had to break, want to remind you that Tech Check is also a podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere. Plus, after the break, Microsoft reportedly mulling big investment in the parent company of ChatGPT. That story's next. Tech Check's back in just a moment. One more thing, Microsoft is looking to make a big bet on ChatGPT, according to a new report, with plans to invest $10 billion in its parent company, OpenAI, bring the valuation to $29 billion. Interesting deal structure here. Microsoft to get 75% of OpenAI's profits until it makes its money back. Then Microsoft and other investors will each have a 49% stake, leaving OpenAI with 2% of the company. Also want to note that this investment is on par with the size of some Microsoft acquisitions in recent years, valued more than its purchases of Skype and GitHub. Um, guys, I got to quote our executive producer, Maria Bowden here, who commented that this sounded like a Shark Tank deal. John, I, I think you agree. <laughs> I guess the question is, what does that say about how Microsoft is viewing this? Well, to me, this says... This is when a $29 billion valuation is not a $29 billion valuation. Yeah. Uh, th this thing, OpenAI has got to make what? Like 13-ish billion dollars in profit before Microsoft actually only owns a little less than half of it. Until then, Carl, it's getting 75% of the profits. Yeah, we've had a long discussion about whether or not this changes the entry point for the Internet among consumers and what that would mean for online search and in particular Alphabet guys. Uh, Morgan Stanley today, we don't see this as a threat to that position, but the risk is it could force Google to push out their own uh, Lambda, uh, for example, product sooner, which would mean higher CapEx, lower margins going forward. But it's going to be a really interesting story in tech in the coming years. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.